Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. It's good to be back with you. It's just me today. I've finally come up for air after a really busy period of my working life, and we all go through those. I've been coordinating the first year students at Monash Uni Physiotherapy. Um, I've been working with PhD student Sanam Tavakoli, who's my first primary PhD student, and Sanam's just submitted a thesis on load in Achilles tendinopathy. So look out for some really good research in the future coming from Sanam. And congratulations to Sanam for her work so far and PhD. Um, I've been really busy coordinating other research projects and other projects I've been involved in. And of course, I'm trying to be a good father and a, and a good husband and being really busy with family life. So, you know, sometimes these important tasks have to be prioritized. And I do wish I could have been publishing weekly Physio Foundations episodes throughout this time. And what I need to get better at is batch recording some of this solo content so I can keep re releasing it weekly. But that'll come in time. Uh, at the same time, I'm really happy that we're here at episode 30 after the, podca uh, the podcast launched this January. It's only been this year, 2022. And there's lots of episodes on there already um, that you can get your teeth into. And a lot of episodes ahead of us with really interesting guests and clinically relevant topics. So if you're new here, um, please consider having a look at those previous episodes and consider following or subscribing. It depends on the platform that you're listening to this on. Um, so the idea there is so you don't miss any new episodes as they come out and it keeps it at the top of your feed. And for those of you who are following and subscribing your regular listeners, I hope you're finding the content helpful. I really do. Um, please let me know what you want me to cover. It's a moving, um, creative project that we can evolve as it goes along. And I do want to do that with you. And of course, most importantly, best of luck at the coalface where you are applying all of this, applying everything we're talking about here as a student or a practitioner or as an educator. So you guys are the reason I'm doing this work. My goal here is to pass on anything that I've found helpful in my clinical career or teaching experience and help contribute to the culture of sharing and helping each other that we have these days on social media and in the podcast world. Now, it is amazing what we have access to at our fingertips for free. And I consume a lot of it. And it was a point in my life that I had to start contributing to the amazing material we've got out here. And hopefully some of my stuff could be considered um, as good as some of the stuff I listen to. But, you know, you can take what you like from these episodes. I'm just going to keep putting out enough quality content um, and leverage heavily off quality guests to do so, that there should be something really helpful there for everyone. So this episode is one of those topics that I think every practitioner, every student, every educator can either relate to or directly use in their practice. And this is the topic of clinical communication. So I understand from the title and well done for clicking on it and getting up to this point. Okay. So it speaks volumes about you and what you want to be doing with your career that you've chosen an episode titled this and you've clicked on it. Okay. I understand that there are many other topics that are going to grab people's attention way faster than clinical communication, but I don't care. Have a listen to what I have to say, because I am convinced these skills are very important. These are skills that underpin all of your other skills, 
all of the ones that you probably want to click on first. Okay, so if you're already a regular listener, you're going to know already why I'm doing this episode. You'll note that many of my previous guests listed communication skills as their most important foundational skill as a practitioner. Okay, so we don't uh, have any doubt that communication skills are important. Um, but what we don't want to do is just all agree that communication skills are important and then not spend the time reflecting on them and trying to improve them. And what we don't want to do is just assume that because we're all friendly and likable and people not along, that we're effective. Just like any other skill, communication skills are something that you will work on, develop throughout your career. It's certainly something that I've had to work on over the years, and I want to share what I've learned so far with you. I wonder if you can hear dogs barking in the background. There's some real life happening in the, the background here. I have to filter them out. There they go. They've stopped. All right. So the problem with, I've titled this episode, The Problem with Clinical Communication, 10 Tips for Foundational Clinical Communication Skills. All right. So that's my attempt at some clickbait, but I'm serious. There is a problem with clinical communication and communication in general, and it's very simple. And the problem is that everyone thinks they're a good communicator. Now, we don't always feel comfortable with every person and in every circumstance. Many people are terrified of public speaking, and that's something that you can develop over time, but that's a well-known phobia of many people. Uh, we don't always feel like we've got our message through to someone, as the saying goes, and there's probably something problematic in that saying that we can think about, but we don't always feel like we've been effective in every situation with our communication, but that's not actually what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, the problem with clinical communication is that essentially we all face the same problem. And this is the curse of knowledge. So this is a well-known saying, uh, once you know something, the curse of knowledge, once you know something, you're very familiar with it it becomes increasingly difficult to remember what it's like when you didn't know that thing. So as a result of your familiarity with a topic, it becomes more difficult to communicate that topic to somebody else. And this can really affect us in our clinical practice. If you're developing expertise in an area, you really have to think about what it's like for the person listening to you who is hearing this for the first time, especially if you've spent years becoming an expert in an area. Think about this for an example. You might have mastered a skill. You might have mastered an exercise or a sports skill like kicking a ball and you want to teach that skill to a novice. And you think, well, it's quite easy. I can do it. I'll show you. It's your turn. And because of the curse of knowledge, you may not always follow a process of teaching because teaching and education is a process. It's something that you learn. It's something that you can be trained in, it's something that you can have degrees in. There's people who are better at teaching and people who uh, are not as good at teaching. And a lot of it is because of the process they're following. But you don't necessarily follow the process because of the curse of knowledge. You feel that it's easy. You have assumed knowledge that you're not passing on to the person. You skip steps that the person needs in their learning because you can't remember what it was like to be able to do this skill. And the person fails and then you blame them. And this is the curse of knowledge 101. 
I'd say this is not controversial, this is well known, but I think where I can be of value from my perspective and experience as someone who teaches novices, the first year undergraduate physiotherapy students, uh, where my work is to specifically work through a process of learning and set people up with these strong foundations for their communication skills and other skills. Where I can be of value here is to bring in some of my perspectives from the process I, t I take to help people to break down those skills of communication and just some essential things that would form that foundation of communication over which you would build the endless complexity of the real world. Because the experience counts for a lot and communication is not formulaic. It's not simple, but there are some simple things that you can do that will have a real impact on your communication in the clinic. And if you forget to do them, they can cause problems. So this is quite a practical episode. I've got some tips in here. There's 10 of them and there's lots of tips within those 10 tips. You can take some notes, write it down. You could question me. I'm happy to be wrong. You could add your tips to this list. And you could you can do your own podcast if you like. You can call it Physio Foundational and you can do your 11 tips of um, foundational skills of communication and your 11 tips will be different from my 10 tips. Okay, so it's my take on it. I hope it's valuable to you. All right, so the first tip, tip number one, is to explain what you want to do and why you want to do it. Now, I've got an episode called The Power of Explanation in Your Clinical Practice. So you can go and check that one out. That's episode seven, where I go into the weeds on my thoughts on explanation, specifically on explaining things and how you go about explaining things. And we're talking about the curse of knowledge there as well. So this might seem obvious, almost too obvious to put number one on the list, but I want you to reflect on this. The more you reflect on this, tip, the more you realize that this is actually powerful stuff. So have you really explained what you want to do and why it's important, why you want to do it before you go ahead and do things? So how sure are you that people understand exactly what will happen during a consultation with you? So for example, if they haven't seen a physiotherapist before or a health pra practitioner before, and they're coming to you with a condition, say it's a physiotherapist, because that's my background and they're coming to you with shoulder pain. Have you explained to them why it will be helpful to sit down with you and talk about the problem first? You, but you have the plan for doing a 10, 15 minute initial interview or a subjective assessment and working through a process of um, clinical reasoning and asking questions related to their aggravating factors, the history, determining irritability and ultimately giving you some um, hypotheses that you can test in a physical examination. That's great. But do they know why you're doing that? And if you routinely explain the purpose of your interview and say, this is what the types of questions I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you a series of questions and together we're going to figure out um, some of the tests we might do for your shoulder and uh, we might figure out some of your goals and then we can work towards getting a treatment plan that works for you. Well, that took me seven seconds to say. So if you're saying, well, we can't keep adding, I'm time poor, I can't keep adding things to my, my practice. Well, it can be done quite efficiently and you might do this routinely. And so tip number one, you might be all on top of, but it's worth reflecting on, especially when you're busy. 
And especially when you're a student, don't make assumptions. Take the time, slow down at the beginning and explain to the person you're working with. It could be a peer that you're practicing with. It could be someone that you're doing simulation with. So in our program and other physio programs, we have a simulation program where students dress up, they wear masks and gowns and they have um, clinical educators, other students dress, dressing up as clinical educators and, um, and other patients in the background. And it's a simulated clinical environment. They have parents or relatives and they have to handle the complexity in a safe on-campus simulated environment. And Narelle Dalwood talks about that in the previous episode on the podcast. So they might be doing that com complex version. They might be in the preclinical units where I work. They could just be working with a partner. And amongst that complexity, at some stage they need to say, okay, we're going to start here. I'm going to slow everything down and talk to the person. And a really helpful way to start the conversation is to actually explain what you want to do and why you want to do it. And part of that might be just simply explaining that you want to do a series of, um, in a physical examination, a series of movements and tests that re reproduce their pain. So a question here, have you explained to the person why it's important to reproduce their pain? So somebody's come in with pain their expectation might be that you will help them with pain. And if you haven't explained why it's important to do a test that reproduces their pain, if that's what you're going to do, then you can understand why they, they may be a little bit confused by that. So simple explanations can go a long way. Another thing to explain is why you think the treatment that you'll offer will, will be helpful. That's something that's kind of intuitive to do, but do they understand? So one of the best tips I got as a practitioner and as a student and that I now give to students as an educator is to slow down, to slow down and listen or pay attention or both to the person in front of you. And this is going to help you read the room, so to speak, and judge how much explanation they want or they need. So you've got years of life experience behind you. You've got clinical experience and training, or at least you are immersed in your clinical training at the beginning of that journey if you're a student and you have an understanding of what you intend to do and the rationale for that. And to you, that might seem really obvious if someone's come to see you that they need a series of questions in an interview format where you can determine the tests that you will do and finally develop a treatment plan and then um, provide explanations and education and uh, you know, physical treatments or an exercise whatever you determine the treatment is that might, might seem really obvious intuitive to you but a question an open question have you taken the time to explain that process so the person knows what's coming up and that's a broader view of explanation you know, so the need to perform physical examination tests and the you know the rationale for treatment what about just simply taking notes while you're doing an interview have you explained to the person why you're, what you're writing down? So they're telling you things and you're writing them furiously down. Do they know what you're writing down? And do they know why you need to take notes and where the notes will be stored? Now it's all fairly benign. You're writing them down so you can keep a record, make a diagnosis. So you've got a reproducible legal record of what you did. 
so you can hand their care over to someone else if needed, and that's all valid. But a couple of sentences explaining that can go a long way for some people, and you shouldn't take that for granted. Here's another one. Someone's come to you for a shoulder problem, and as a part of the treatment, you're going to be observing their movement. You might use your hands to do some manual treatment and guide them through some exercises. So in order to do that, you need to see their shoulder and you ask them to take their clothing off and ask them if they've got appropriate underwear underneath and if they're, they're comfortable to do so. Do they know why they need to take their shirt off or their jumper off or their, or their coat off? I don't think it's good enough to just say, all right, take your shirt off to somebody, even if they're comfortable with it. I think it's really important. It's on you to explain why that is important. And we'll come back that, to that in a minute when we talk about consent. So someone nodding along or even just doing exactly as you tell them is not the same as them consenting or being informed about what's about to happen. So it all comes from the explanation. So don't assume people understand. Always provide some sort of an explanation to them. And the explanation has to be simple and personalized. Of course, some people would need more explanation than others. It doesn't mean, you know, if your explanation is simple, that you're withholding information or dumbing things down. It's more about honesty and awareness and personalizing what you're saying to a person. Personalizing to a person. Good one. You need to be perfectly honest about what you want to do and why you want to do it so that the person's informed and they can agree to what you're doing. So like I mentioned before, I've got a whole episode on the power of explanation in clinical practice. That's what it's called. But I think the key message here in terms of explanation is that an explanation is required. It's really not okay just to assume that people understand things. Um, it's our job to judge or be aware, at least be aware of how much explanation is required in any specific circumstance and then provide that. We can't just launch into our methods, our routine, and then help uh, hope people will understand the bigger picture of why it's happening. I think a little bit of an explanation goes a long way. And, you know, it's our job is communication, which is a two-way interpersonal skill. It's really not just a matter of putting information up into the air around a person and hoping some of it absorbs in. It's really something that you do with a person. And to me, it's the most enjoyable part of the job as a practitioner and as an educator is that process of working with someone, making sure they understand. And once we've got an explanation and we have this solid foundation where we're both on the same page and we're both understanding what's going to happen and why it's important, then we can move on to get consent. But before we do that, something I really wanted to add in here as point number two, so this is tip number two, is no jargon. There's nothing um, that interrupts and disrupts the process of communication like unnecessarily dropping jargon into a explanation. So jargon is industry-specific or technical terms that don't need to be in there. That, um, that you add because it's convenient to you and you're thinking about the impairments in your head and then you verbalize that jargon to the person. So rather than saying, I'm going to assess, and this is probably something I'm speaking more to novice learners here and, and first year students, but it definitely 
Uh, it's something that you want to think about across your career as well. Don't fall into this trap. Um, you wouldn't say to somebody, I, I want to assess the active and passive movements of your shoulder, I hope. Surely you could say to them, I want to, you to move your shoulder. I'm going to observe and measure that. I might even place my hands on your shoulder and on, the, on your arm and then help you do some of that movement. So you've just explained the process of an active movement test to observe and measure and overpress without saying any of that. And look, there are numerous examples of jargon that you could use. I mean, there's, there's no limit to the amount of technical terms that you could use in any industry, particularly in health professional as a physiotherapist. But a question that you could use to keep yourself in check is, could you explain the concept that you're explaining here, perhaps to an adult in a clinical practice or in a hospital, wherever you're working, to a five-year-old kid? If there's peds physios listening or peds practitioners listening, you're going to be thinking, well, yeah, that's what I do. Okay, but I'm specifically talking about when we're delivering jargon to an adult and expecting them to process that when they've never heard of active range of motion before, okay, that can make it difficult. So could you now, in your head, can you explain this concept to a five-year-old kid? Um, when my kids were five, when they were four and six, let's say, they're full of questions. They'd come up to me and they'd ask you all sorts of complex things and it's lots of fun. Uh, Daddy, what's a government? They've heard that on the news. What's a government? And I'd say, okay. And, and you'd have to come up with an explanation. You can either dismiss them, go look at, ask your mum, go look it up or you provide them with an explanation and it can't be full of jargon and it can't be boring and it's got to be at their level. So it's a really, I found it really fun. I'd give lots of explanations. I'd say, well, the government is people from all around the country, from all the different areas who come together and make decisions or something like that. And I'd say, them, okay, look, see the street out the front of our house. Now we could all go out there and look after the street, but what happens if, the people in the next street don't look after their street. So the government, their job is to look after all the streets. And the kids go, oh, okay, that makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, they just tell you as well. The kids are good with that. So jargon, it's a problem. Um, it feels good to say it. It doesn't feel good to listen to it. So be aware of it. And so once we've got an explanation that makes sense to the person and we're on the same page. We're going to come to a topic here, which is tip number three, which is uh, a real, it's almost a pet peeve. Let's just call it a pet topic of mine. I really want to make sure everyone I work with as a, an educator and anyone I can influence listening to this online has a really good process of consent. So tip number three is don't dismiss the importance of consent. Don't assume that you've got consent for things. You really do need to tie in your explanation with consent because they go together. And there's three things I teach students that they must get consent for. So number one, first thing you need consent for is to, to touch the patient, to place your hands on somebody. It's not implied for them to come in and see a physiotherapist that you will touch them. It's something that you specifically need to get informed consent. And so, of course, you can't get consent without explaining what it's for. So if we use the shoulder as an example again, and I'm treating myself as a patient, Luke, I would like to assess your shoulder. I think that I can help you with your shoulder. In order to do so, I'm going to, well, I'm going to ask you to do a, a series of movements of your shoulder. I'm going to look at them. I might even measure them. 
And then I'm going to place my hands on your arm and on your shoulder, and I'm going to help guide the movement. And I might even have a bit of a feel around that area that you mentioned before that was a bit sore with my thumbs. Is that okay with you? Okay, so not, I haven't just got general consent. Can I touch you? Or is that okay? You've actually explained what you're going to do and why. And then you've got informed consent for what you're going to do. So that's point number one for consent. The other thing you're getting consent for is to expose the part. So what I see a lot of is, and what I hear a lot of is, all right, take your shirt off for me. Why? People are polite. They've come to you seeking treatment. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're probably going to go along with you. Just because they went along with it doesn't mean you've got consent. Why do they need to expose the part? It's a hip. Say I'm treating your hip. And I might say to you, all right, if, if you're in, I've got to be careful here. In Australia, we trousers are used for pants. Pant, we use pants for trousers. Okay, so I'm talking about trousers when I say pants here. Take your trousers off. Okay, why? The patient doesn't know why. You haven't explained. Here's a better way of doing it. Okay, so I think I can help you with your hip. To do so, I can you know, I need to do a bit of an assessment. I'd like to watch you moving your hip. I might even use my hands to um, help guide the movement and might have a bit of a feel around those sore areas you are talking about before. To do that, I need to be able to see the area so I can see the muscles and have a bit of a feel around that area that you said was sore. Do you have any appropriate underwear on underneath? Yeah. Are you comfortable removing your trousers and letting me do those things? Yes. So now we've got informed consent and it doesn't take long, but it's so important. I'm not even necessarily talking about getting yourself in trouble, although that can happen as well. If the person is doing something that they haven't consented for, I'm just talking about making people comfortable and making sure people are aware of what's coming because it's really important for your rapport for the person as well. And the third thing, the obvious thing that you need consent for is, is the techniques, the physical examination tests and the, you know, the, and the treatments you're doing. And you can't get consent for what you're doing by just going through a series of steps, do this, do that, do this. Yet you have to explain what's coming up. Does that sound okay? Are you comfortable with that? Any questions? And then you've got consent. So you're getting consent for exposing the part, touching the person, and then doing the technique. And consent's broader than that, of course. You, you need consent for communicating with other health professionals or coaches or family members, and this requires consent. There's instances where you need written consent and you want to get that in, in writing or in a questionnaire. Um, the enemy of consent is assumption. You simply can't assume that a person's okay with the things that you asked them to do just because they nodded um, and went along with it. And there's no way of asking somebody consent without explaining what you want to do with them and why it's important to do it, which is point number one. So this is, these are the points that I teach the first year physio students um, ad nauseum, on repeat. And I teach them to bundle up their explanation and consent together so the person is informed. And it's a, it's a real pet topic of mine. It's something that I want to, something I'll die in a ditch for is making sure people are clear with their communication and get consent for the treatments they give, because I think it really matters. So rather than just ticking things off, if you're a student listening to this, rather than thinking, I'm just going to tick things off separately, for example, I should introduce myself, I need to explain what I want to do, and then I want to get consent. Well, yes, that, that, that's a criteria for a, a practical exam right there. 
um, yes, you should do all those things, but can you see how they can go together seamlessly and they are all related and you can't really do them independently. And I think doing this well is what makes really strong foundations for everything else you do that will come up in your treatment and assessment that you're going to do. And this leads us to the next point, point number four, which is talking the person through what you're doing while you're doing it. So once you've got consent, it's not good enough just to get general consent for, okay, for exposing the part and touching the person and maybe for a general explanation of what you want to do. If you're doing something that's going to be quite, um, I guess, concerning to the patient or are you going to put them in a vulnerable position, right? So they potentially with their, you know, their clothing removed or doing something that might reproduce pain. A really good way to, go, to gain the rapport from the person and of course to get consent is to really explain to them what you're doing as you're doing it and talk them through what you're doing. So the person's already generally provided consent for what you're doing, but the job hasn't finished there. There's an ongoing obligation to keep explaining what you're doing as you're doing it. And this helps keep the person comfortable and informed and it helps involve them in the management and the decision-making. And so these communication and physical examination skills, for example, aren't separate. So you work with the person and you involve them in the process of examination and treatment. So a good example of this is um, something I talk to the first year physio students about when they're performing a therapist applied treatment. So for example, a manual mobilization technique for a joint or a therapist applied stretching technique for lengthening muscles or even prescribing an exercise for increasing joint range of motion or muscle strength. Right? So there's, when we're doing this, there are a lot of questions you need to ask to help monitor the effect of the treatment and to, to make sure it's safe. And we'll get to that next. But what I'm talking about here is a bit more broad. So, for example, you get the you ask the person to stand up after they've been lying down. You say, up you get, stand up. They may be wondering, why do I have to stand up? I was just getting comfortable. What's happening now? So just by explaining what you want to do and why you want to do it and involving them in what you're thinking and what's coming up next, that person can be more comfortable, more engaged and be more a part of what's happening. Oh yeah, I'll do that. Let's, let's test this. Let's try that. Show me this, show me that rather than being a passive participant in a series of pre-planned tests, examinations and treatments you're doing. So this is really important for your patient rapport, which will affect your effective, which will influence your effectiveness. Um, and it's also linking back to your, um, your patient and their consent. And these little things really matter. And they, they lead us up to tip number five, which is where we're going to get a bit more specific with the communication. So tip number five is investigate. Investigate with your communication. Don't just talk. Right? So everything we do in clinical communication, clinical practice, is a two-way investigation involving two equal people's and contributions. So you as the practitioner and the person who's come to see you for help. So you have to have good lines of questioning that are directly related to clinical reasoning and useful questions that you can add in, uh, you know, things such as what do you feel? Where do you feel it? Can I go further? 
So take, I'll take you back to those examples before of a, a, um, a student who's performing a, uh, a physical examination test or muscle lengthening um, technique, for example. We want to make sure that's effective. You don't want to just do it like a do it robotically. So say someone's stretching their their finger extensor muscles, got the elbow straight, fist, and you're giving them an exercise and they're bending their wrist forward. What do you feel? Oh, I feel a stretch. Where is it? Oh, it's on the top of the forearm and they point to it. Okay, that's good. Can you go a bit further? Sure, I can go a lot further. Oh, okay. So at that point, when you if you didn't ask, can I go further, didn't clarify that, and it didn't involve the person in that, you, you wouldn't have figured out that you weren't actually being effective. They can go a lot further than that. And then we go further from there. So, okay, well, how does that feel? Oh, yeah. It feels a little bit uncomfortable, but let's explore further. Whereabouts? What does it actually feel like? Does it feel like a stretch? Yeah, it feels like a stretch. Okay. Yeah. Can you go further? So constantly talking to the person and almost bargaining with them and trying to get them to work with you to see if we can be effective. Whereas if you start, if you stop earlier and you say, do this, what, what do you feel? Where do you feel it? A stretch in the back of the forearm. Okay. You wouldn't have figured out that it wasn't actually effective. You can go a lot further than that. And then more importantly, when you give that one as an exercise, that person then has to apply that two or three times a day, for example, if that's the frequency throughout the week, and hopefully we'll come back to you with some gains in their muscle length or their range of motion, whatever you're trying to achieve. Uh, if you don't teach them that monitoring and that investigation and that feeling and talk to them about the experience, they can do an exercise, but they might not be doing it properly. And we see that all the time. So actually be curious and work with the person and investigate you know, ask the person to tell you if it feels different to the other side or if it does it feel different to how it normally feels. How did it feel prior to the treatment or prior to the injury or weeks ago, for example, or when they were younger? Right? So think about it. another example, manual mobilization for a joint. For example, a, a stiff elbow. Okay, so someone's been immobilized or they've had an elbow dislocation and they've got stiffness in their elbow. So you might be doing some manual therapy treatment with them. Fine. So even if that manual therapy treatment leads to significant gains in range of motion within a session, uh, I'd imagine that your main part of your main part of your treatment is going to be exercise for that condition because the person's going to need to do the majority of the work on their own. So you're going to have to give them an exercise. And if you don't have these foundations of investigating what it feels like, where they feel it, can they go further? And of course, this ties in with the warnings you'll give them. You know, I don't want it to hurt afterwards. It should, when you're resting in between these stretches, the pain should go away straight away. And 24-hour response, yes, it should be uncomfortable as you're doing it, but not the next morning. Oh, okay, so I'll remember that. Now I'm going to go home and oh, was, I, I think I overdid it. I think I did the exercise a little bit hard because it was sore the next morning. And to which you can say, good, you're taking ownership of your exercise here and you're doing it. You obviously have done it if you've told me that and, and you made, you know, you went a bit hard. Okay. We won't go as hard next time. And that's, that doesn't come from just robotically prescribing someone an exercise and you do this. You can, a textbook can do that. Your role is to investigate with them. An investigation is not the same as an interrogation. 
right? So it's not a series of questions. What it's really a two-way process. You're really talking to the person here, working with them to really investigate the problem and figure out in their words and on their terms what's happening. So, I mean, I think this really talks to one of our basic needs as humans, which is to feel listened to. There's nothing worse than when you you know all about a problem and you get an expert who comes in and railroads you and just tells you all about it and tells you you're wrong and and gives you a bit of a lecture and you don't get a say and you, you don't feel a part of it, all right? So we've, we need, as humans, we need to feel like we've been listened to. We feel like we're part of something. Somebody understands us. How's it any different when you go and see a health professional? Of course, you want them to be listening to you and you want to work on things together. So I don't really, the idea of just doing say a manual therapy technique on someone and just sort of chatting about the weather and not really doing warnings, not really monitoring them, not really involving them in what you're doing and why you're doing it, where they feel it. And can you go further? And soon you'll be doing this as an exercise, feel how it's, you know, okay. You feel a bit of a stretch in the wrist joint or the elbow joint. Okay. That's a good thing because it will take, it will be a little bit uncomfortable to increase this stiff elbow that you've got here or stiff wrist. It's going to take time. You're probably going to take a few weeks. You're going to have to do it two or three times a day. It will be a little bit uncomfortable, but what we don't want is pain that lasts afterwards, particularly the next day. And we definitely don't want any sharp pain or any discomfort. Say they've fractured their wrist. And we'll talk about this example in a minute of a, a warnings for someone who's just come out of immobilization after a wrist fracture. Where should they feel that discomfort? Massive difference between feeling the discomfort in the stiff wrist that they're gently mobilizing after they've come out of plaster and feeling sharper pain on the fracture side. So that's your education that, that comes in through that process of investigation, working with the person. You can't just go in there and just apply methods one after the other with your blinders on and expect people to sort of understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. It's really important to acknowledge the plan of the person who's come to see you and what they want out of it, and then try to work with them to investigate the problem with them and then explain what you think it means on their terms. All right, so this is really related to the next point, which is point number six, which is monitoring and monitoring the effective interventions. So this is a really important foundational skill in clinical communication, when we're prescribing exercises, when you're doing manual treatments, anytime you're trying to improve something and you've got, think about a control board where you've got lots of knobs and you can turn up the volume on different things. Okay. So you can turn up the volume on frequency. You can do it more frequently. You can turn up the load, which could be how hard you're stretching something, or of course the weight, if it's a strengthening exercise you know, duration, and recovery. So you can change all these knobs as an analogy. Okay. So you can't just change knobs and not monitor the output. You've got output speakers and you or headphones on and you're monitoring the effect of that with this analogy. And it's the same in the clinic. You, we need to be monitoring beyond just the general question. How's that going? How's that feeling? Good on you. Keep going. And this is part of the education that goes along with the treatment. So I'll give you an example rather than this analogy. Um, so you're helping someone prescribing an exercise just after they finish a period of immobilization for a collie's fracture of the wrist. And, and the exercise you've given them is a simple 
active or an active assisted wrist extension. You want to improve that wrist extension so you've got more range of motion, which will help you with the length tension of your uh, intrinsic and extrinsic muscles of your hand, which will help your hand function and your fine motor control. So wrist extension is really important for wrist function. So you, you know, you're working on that. A real simple exercise. It's low load because they're only at the point of union. They've just come out of plaster. Fracture's not consolidated. So you, we know all this. They're performing an exercise. You're observing it. You're monitoring it verbally, non-verbally. And the point is that it's going to be uncomfortable. They've just come out of plaster. They don't want to move. Okay, so the monitoring has to come out, it has to come through the exercise and through the any manual treatment you do. So what do you feel? Where do you feel it? Can you go further? So it's so it's uncomfortable, is it? Whereabouts? In the wrist joint. Okay. And they indicate the wrist joint. Okay, that's good. That's expected. Right? So what's acceptable for them? Think about the concept of acceptable pain or unacceptable pain. I think it's more useful than a number. It should be acceptable. It should be, you know, and you can see that in their face. And everyone's different, of course. And there's going to be a little bit of discomfort there. But then you can explain to them, okay, as long as that discomfort goes away straight away, you don't get any pain the next day, and you don't have any pain on the fracture site, and you can talk to them about that. Of course, you don't say the fracture site. You can say, this is where you broke it, here on the wrist. But this is the wrist joint. So this is going to be stiff. This is going to be uncomfortable. But on the bone here where you broke it, now that's solid. It's it's not rock solid yet. Okay, so it's it's solid enough that the plaster can come off. You can't do angulation through the fracture. So you're not going to do overpressures and you're not going to put body weight on it or hold bags of shopping. And of course, you'll be educating the patient about that. But it's it's solid enough that you can move it and it's safe. And the key thing is, oh, they might understand that, but the key thing is that you give them that education that, okay, wrist, this is the wrist joint and that's what's stiff. It's going to be a bit uncomfortable, but I know what the limits are now. As long as it's only uncomfortable when I'm doing the exercise, it's not causing me sharp pain at the fracture site and it's not painful the next day that I'm within the limits of safety. And that's powerful. And a lot of that comes from actually watching the exercise that they're doing all the way through. This, um, this idea of just watching a couple of reps and then writing down a dosage has to go. You got to get that out of your head that that's okay. You have to watch them do the exercise all the way through from start to finish so that you know that they can do it without aggravating any pain or symptoms. If it's a strengthening exercise, you need to know when they get fatigued, not just in the first set, but after the third or fourth set and watch them do the whole thing. So you know they can do it safely and you know where the ceiling and the floor is. Now, point number seven is warnings. And I've, good, the good news is I've already touched on this. Uh, this is really related to explanations. It's related to, in a way, to consent. Because if you've consented to doing an exercise that is going to make you sore the next day, you need to warn someone about that and they need to say that's okay. I mean, maybe they don't want to do what you're asking them to do. Anytime you're going to create discomfort or risk, they need to be provided with a warning and you can't do that without explaining it and without getting consent. So it's all connected. Um, warnings, if I talk to... Um, to novices, to first-year physio students or, or anyone who's in the training phase, 
often your warnings that you give, you, you do them, but often the warnings are, are generic. They're quite general. For example, if you have any pain, let me know. Okay, fine. Let's go back to that example of someone who's just come out of immobilization after a wrist fracture. The obvious question is, well, where? It's going to be uncomfortable. And so people, maybe people call any sort of discomfort associated with moving the stiff wrist, maybe they call that pain. So you need to explain it a little bit more. There will be discomfort in the wrist as you move it. Mild discomfort is okay. Discomfort that lasts beyond the point of after the period of your exercise is something you should tell me about or stop. Uh, and if it's worse the next day, that's a problem and you should let me know. Where you feel it's really important. So you really don't want to be getting any pain over the fracture side. So a more nuanced warning would be you will have some discomfort. However, it's really important that that's limited to the wrist and it's only when you're exercising and you don't have pain the next day. And if you do, you've probably gone a bit too hard. With that wrist example, other good warnings would include other contraindications. So if you've just come out of plaster, no doubt the person has already been informed of these, but a really important role of physiotherapist is you've got a bit of extra time with the person. You can talk them through and make sure they understand everything they've been told and reinforce that. So contraindications to loading that fracture in this example. So carrying heavy things on that side and putting weight through your hands at that stage. So you don't want any angulation through the fracture. And there's so many examples of warnings you could give people. You can think about your total hip precautions. Now, that's another topic. Maybe we'll do an episode of that, a, a change in practice example, because um, depending on where you work, there's, there's less emphasis on total hip replacement precautions. But assuming we're working with those, um, it's a really good example of when you can provide someone some warnings, some contraindications. All right, so let's go into exercise here. So tip number eight, I want you to think about is your communication during an exercise and specifically the cueing that you give people. And really, I have already talked about this in that episode seven, the power of communication in clinical practice. So you can have a listen to that one if you're interested. Cueing, verbal and nonverbal cueing. So to do an exercise, to teach someone an exercise properly, really requires that you know how to do it yourself. Number one. Okay, so you, you don't give someone an exercise that you've never done yourself. You need to go to the gym. You need to do these exercises and understand them if you're going to prescribe them. And when you've done that, you're going to have an idea of the movement that you want. So cueing visually, verbally. So it can be through a demonstration. So you can cue someone by combining verbal visual demonstration. You can use a mirror in front of them, for example, or do a mirror image for them with your own body. But cueing is going to be something that you that really adds to your exercise prescription. Cueing can happen with your hands. So say you, again, we'll take the shoulder as an example. If you're giving someone an exercise for a stiff shoulder and say the exercise is walking their fingers up the wall and so stretching their shoulder into flexion, just for a simple example, um, there's strict movements that they may be doing to avoid the discomfort of the stiffness that's in the shoulder. They might be laterally flexing their trunk or rotating their trunk. So with consent, a simple cue can be to place your hands on the shoulder and say, move, move back here, straighten up. So one of the, um, the tips I always give students is simple cues. 
one thing at a time. I guess that's two tips there. Keep it simple. So is there one simple thing you can do? And this is probably talks to coaching a little bit as well. If you're coaching someone with complex movements, one of the worst things you can do is give them three or four things to do at once. Think about a golf swing. All right, so correct this and do that and do this and do that. And guess what? They will get worse every time if you do that. So you correct one thing at a time. And what's that key thing that you can give them that will impact on all the other things you're seeing? So is it to just to stand a bit taller or is it to relax? So simple. And they do that and they relax or breathe. You're holding your breath. Or, you know, is it, what is it? What are you seeing? Can you give a simple verbal cue? Can you reinforce that with your hands? Um, so the confidence to work with someone with consent, to touch them, to demonstrate to them, and to use simple verbal and visual and tactile cues is really important. It's really powerful and helpful for people. And once again, it, rather than you telling someone something as the expert and, and expecting them to get on with doing it, by placing your hands on them, working with them and being patient and talking to them, you're really teaching them that this takes time and, and it's okay. And I'm, I'm coaching you through it and I'm here for you. So it's a patient therapist alliance thing as well. All these things are very much connected. Number nine, how do you summarize what you've found to the patient in a way that they understand? When you are clear on a diagnosis, how do you explain that to the patient in terms they understand? What about before that stage? What about when you do a, a physical examination test and you find something and you think, hmm, write it down. Maybe assess the other side. Okay, you're thinking about it and then you move on. What effect does that have? You don't have to always explain everything you're doing in real time to a person, but a bit of a summary to the patient in layman's terms and avoiding that jargon of what you're finding and what you think it means can be really powerful. So thinking about this person's come to you for a diagnosis and usually for a solution, for a plan. And they're thirsty for information. They really want to know what you think and what you found. So by verbalizing that in terms that will make sense to the person, it can be really powerful. And this is directly related, as all these points are, to the final point, the final hot tip, tip number 10, which is linking to the person's condition. Now, I really sound like a first-year physio educator here because this is a criteria, right, for assessment for students. How well did that student actually link what they did to the person and their condition? So in simple terms, it could you might think of their age, their occupation, uh, their, you know, their hobbies, whatever it is. So suddenly, instead of talking about a Collie's fracture like I was before and a stiff wrist, and fracture site pain, suddenly you're talking about Luke with a broken wrist doing an exercise, who's a 40 something year old guy who wants to return to mountain biking. Very different conversation to an 85 year old person who wants to return home and avoid um, going to rehabilitation, for example. So linking to the person in their condition, um, in those two examples, an 85 year old Luke 
versus a 40 something year old Luke may help well have a very different bone density profile, um, may have different family responsibilities, um, may or may not still be working, hopefully not. There's many things that you can talk to the, about the person. So it's a nice one to finish off with. If we're going to be really effective communicators in the clinic, it's essential that you're talking to a person, not a wrist or an elbow or a shoulder or a knee. And that's something that the person will notice. That's, that's the difference between them you know, coming back to you or recommending you or not recommending you in a private setting or more importantly, that their outcome, the ultimate outcome and how well they go. You know, if you treat them like a wrist or a shoulder or an elbow or a knee and focus and get tunnel vision and focus on that joint, well, you might do everything that the next practitioner does. But if that next practitioner talks to them like a human being and tries to link the aggravating factors and the functional limitations and the impairments, all these things you're measuring and, and trying to treat and links them to that person and their life and their goals, that's going to change everything. All right, that's it. That's more than enough. And now it's your turn. Over to you to try to apply some of these tips and put these ideas into action. And like I said before, this is by no means an exhaustive list. There's plenty more, I could say, there's plenty more episodes we'll have. If you're someone who's really interested in this and you want to talk to me about it, please find me on Twitter. You can look at the show notes and you can find my email. You can find my Twitter handle. You can DM me. Um, I really do want, I'm, do, I'm only doing this to, to share, connect with people, to share knowledge and to learn from other people. That's why I've done more guests than solo episodes because I just love talking to the guests and learning from them. Um, you might be a guest. You might want to talk about this. You might feel strongly about some of the things I've said um, and want to talk about it. Contact me. Come on and um, we'll join the community. That'd be really good. If you don't want to do that, you can leave me a comment or you can just share the episode with a friend and, and get involved in that way or um, simply get on there and subscribe and be a listener and that's fine as well. But um, it's a bit more of a casual conversation, this one, a bit, um, bit of a long form. Uh, if you've made it this far, do appreciate your company. And I wish you all the very best with applying this in the clinic. And all I want is you to uh, find this helpful and be better and keep improving and keep helping people with conditions. So until next time, this is me. This is Luke Periton, wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning. See you next time. 